0: Amen. Welcome to Pole Creek this morning. Isn't God good to us? Such a blessing of worship so far, and we're just going to continue in worship as we study God's Word. So if you will, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to continue our series, What is Real? As we go through the book of 1 John, we don't have a whole lot left as it is a very short book of the Bible. But I'm praying that God has blessed you as we've gone through this, as His inspired Word written by the Apostle John. So 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. Uh, When you find found your place, you may stand as we read God's word and respect his word. We're only going to read verses 7 and 8 for our introduction. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We're thankful, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We're thankful for the gift of eternal life that was bought for us with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the resurrection from the dead. As Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, we know that one day we will also rise from the dead, those who know Christ and have trusted him as their savior. So, God, today as we talk about love and as we talk about what is real, Lord, I pray that you'd reveal to our hearts your will for our lives, that you would lead us and guide us, and that you would encourage us in all that we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, the title of my sermon today is a question, and I want us to answer this question as we go through this passage of Scripture Is love a feeling or a choice? Is love a feeling or a choice? And I think it all begins by the definition of love. Where did love come from, and what does love mean? But first of all, I want to talk about a man in history named King Henry VIII. And I've always had kind of a fascination with King Henry VIII because of his volatility, because of the way that he was able to rule England with such a bad temper. But he had so many things going on in his life. He had six wives during the course of his life six wives. He was the epitome of someone who had perverted the, the love. The view of love was perverted in his mind. There was even a poem written so that people could kind of keep up with how many wives he had and what happened to each one of them. The poem goes like this, King Henry VIII to six wives was wedded. One died, one survived, two divorced, and two beheaded. Raise your hand if you'd like to sign up to be King Henry VIII's wife. I was doing the math. Anybody in here like ratios? I was doing the math. You have a one in two chance of surviving if you were King Henry VIII's wife. So uh, two divorced and one survived, all the rest of them died, so that's pretty rough, right? But it shows a reflection of human love, our own definition of love, King Henry VIII's definition of love. It was, I will love you as long as you can do something for me. See, King Henry's whole issue was that he wanted a male heir to the throne. So as he was married to these women, if they could not produce for him a male heir, then he would find some charges to pull against them. He would try to get the marriage annulled. Um, Actually, the Pope refused to annul his first marriage, with Catherine, so he decided to make up a new church, the Church of England. And that's why the Church of England separated from the Catholic Church, is because King Henry VIII wanted to annul his wedding, his marriage, his initial marriage, because she could not produce for him a male heir. So it was a, a what can you do for me mentality of love. As long as you're doing for me, then I'm gonna keep loving you. And really, it reflects the Hollywood version of love, right, the, the, the version of love that we see played out every single day in the news media In the um, tabloids, on social media, you know, we see these couples, they split up, right? They get married for a couple years, they split up. You know, I just don't love so-and-so anymore. They find a new love, something new and exciting, someone else that might excite them more than the previous spouse that they had. They choose to love whom they want, and whom they want to love changes about as much as Hannah and I change Sam's diaper. (laughs) So think about that for a minute. So don't you think, though, there's more to love than that? Don't you think love is stronger than that, that it's, it's deeper than that? Well, where do we go to find out what love actually is? Because I promise you, if you want to turn on the TV or if you want to look in a magazine or if you want to look on social media, you will find a definition of love. They'll use the same word. They may even use some of the same terms and terminology. But I promise you, the world's definition of love is diametrically different than God's definition of love. So we have to ask, well, who gets to determine love? Who gets to determine the definition? Who created love? Who invented love? Who began love? Where did love first start? That's going to be the questions that we've got to answer as we determine what is love. So the first question I want us to ask this morning, if you're taking notes, write this down. Where did love come from? Where did it come from? There was a man by the name of James Naismith, and I thought this was really interesting. All of you athletes out there will find this interesting. He lived from November 6, 1861 to November 28, 1939. He was a Canadian sports coach who, in December of 1891, took a soccer ball and a peach basket into the gym at the Springfield, Massachusetts YMCA and invented basketball. Over the course of the next decade, he worked to refine the game and its rules and build its popularity. In 1936, basketball had become an official event at the Olympic Games in Berlin. And here's why he wanted to develop this game. At the YMCA training school that they had every year, athletes found themselves at loose ends between the end of football season and the start of baseball season. So several trainers at the YMCA were tasked to develop a sport to keep the students physically active During the down season, the new game was to have have two stated objectives, make it fair for all players, and free of rough play. I think the second one may not have been achieved like they thought it would have. Everything gets kind of rough under the basket. But Mr. Naismith invented basketball. You look at these great sports that draw millions of fans a year, and you think, where did that originate? And it's amazing to think that these ideas, that these concepts began as a thought in one individual's mind. The game of basketball began by one man taking a soccer ball and a peach basket and developing the game of basketball. So let me ask you this. If Mr. Naismith was still alive today, and I I want to give a shout out to Jane because good things do come out of Canada, believe it or not, right? (laughs) Ain't that right, Eric? Jane and basketball, two good things right there out of Canada. Would you go up to Mr. Naismith and you say, listen, basketball's a great game and all, but I think you need to do this differently. I don't think it worked out quite like it should have. Who am I to tell Mr. Naismith how to develop his own invention? Who am I to tell him how to improve upon something that he created and that he made? Shouldn't he get to be the determiner of the success of his own invention? Shouldn't he get to be the determiner of the purpose of his invention? You know, it'd be like going up to Henry Ford and saying, "Uh, Mr. Ford, the assembly line you created was cool and all, but you need to do this and this differently. No, you can't do that. Where the invention and the thought originated, that person gets to determine its purpose, its success, and its future moving forward. So we look at the word of love, the concept of love, the idea of love. Who invented it? Well, we understand that in these passages that the word loved used is the Greek word agape. Now remember, in Greek, there are four different words for love. And you're going to see them used throughout Scripture. You have um, phileo, which is like a brotherly love. You have storos, which would be more of like a family or a motherly type of love. You have eros, which is like an erotic passionate type of love and then you have agape and what agape is is agape is the greek word used when the bible refers to the love of christians to other christians it is the word used when you refers to the love of men toward god agape is used when you refer to the love of god toward men in romans 5 8 um, agape is the word used when you refer to the love of god the father to god the son in john fifteen ten. Agape is the word used in the Greek for love when you refer to the love of God, the Son, toward all of mankind in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Also, it is the word used referencing God as the God of love in 2 Corinthians 13.11. So now we start to understand that agape love is the true biblical love. When God talks about love, he is not talking about erotic, passionate love. He is not talking about a brotherly love. He is not even talking about a love that a mother has for her child. It is talking about agape love, which is defined as an unconditional, unmerited love towards someone else. A love that is not based upon emotion or feeling. A love that is a choice. So now, when you think about love, do not think about how you feel. Because your emotions do not in any way determine true love. Emotions can be affected by true love, but because of their inconsistency, you can in no way determine true love by your emotions. You know, it's kind of like a lot of people when, they, when they're dating and when they're dating this person and they're thinking, you know, is this the right person or not? You know, um, I don't really feel the fireworks like I think I should, but, you know, I, I, I'm attracted to them, I, I love them, and they're waiting for some big blast of like, this is the person. They're waiting for God to show up to them in person and say, you need to marry this person. Instead of understanding biblically that love is a choice. Now, don't get me wrong. You have to want to be around this person. You, want, you have to want to you know, like them and be attracted to them. But love cannot be associated with emotion because if it is, and you get married to someone based upon the butterflies you get in your stomach when you see them walk through the door, in about two or three months after marriage... Those butterflies will be nowhere to be found. They'll be in Mexico flying south for the winter, right? (laughs) So if we base our love for our spouses on emotion, then our marriages fall. Then our marriages don't last. Then they're based upon something that changes every single day. How how many times a week do you get in a bad mood, would you say? You know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? Some people more than others? Well, Would it make sense that every time you got in a bad mood that you left your wife or your husband? No, good grief, no. That's how crazy emotions are. And when you watch these movies and these sitcoms and these dramas and all this other junk, you see that you almost start to pull for the person who's cheating on their spouse because you're like, well, you know, they're married to this person, but they don't feel the love anymore. But man, this new person, they treat them like they want to be treated. They smile at them when they walk in the door, they listen to them. You know, maybe they should leave their spouse and go and be with this next person. My friends, that's out of hell. And Satan will play on your emotions in such a way that he will destroy your life. It's almost like a a horse or a donkey with a carrot on a fishing pole. As you're leading that donkey with that carrot on the pole, the donkey just sees the carrot. He doesn't see the cliff in front of him that you're about to lead him off of. Satan uses your emotions in the exact same way, Christians. And we have to be careful to remember love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. In verse 7, we see that playing out very clearly because we see where love came from. In verse John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. Here we have the author, the originator, and the inventor, God Almighty. So guess who gets to determine what love means? God. Not Hollywood. Not social media. Not even your own feelings. God gets to determine what love is and what love means. He made it, he created it, and he put it forth for us to enjoy. It says that in everyone who loves has been born of God. Then we see in verse 8 The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So here we have in verse 7, love is from God. And then in verse 8, God is love. Guess who's qualified to determine love? God. It's scripture. And remember, we are a scriptural, Bible-believing church. We base our worldview and everything we believe upon what the Word of God says says. We look through the world through the lens of Scripture. Now, when I look at the world through the lens of Scripture and I see all of these claims of love, I very quickly begin to see that that's not the kind of love that God's talking about. That's a different love. That is a a lust of a love. That is a love that only provides for individual needs. That is a selfish kind of love, but the love of the Bible is from God. God is love. Now, I want us to be very careful Love is not God, but God is love. And what I mean by that, love is not something to be worshipped. Love is not something to be pursued. You must pursue God. And when we pursue God, then we understand and realize true love. We live in a society where love is a God now. Love is worshipped. You know, everybody will tell you the answer to all the problems in our world today is if we could all just love each other. And that's their answer for the world's problems. Just love each other. And what they really mean, if you study it and you look behind it, they want you to accept everyone's sin. Let's just go ahead and dumb it down to the very basics. They want you to accept their sin and to congratulate them and to pat them on their back in their sin. And the Bible does not teach that that is love, that is actually hate. See how Satan works? He's got the carrot. Looks like love, sounds like love, makes sense, but it's hate, and it's destruction, and it's death. That's why we have so many children and teenagers um, having sex outside of marriage, because of Hollywood love. Well, if I feel it, and and I engage in this act, then I'm going to experience love. And I'm going to get to feel what true love is. And then they're let down, and they're let down, and they're destroyed. And they're they're placed with an unexpected pregnancy. And, and, And all these different things that happen because of the carrot that Satan is putting in front of them. Listen, love is not an emotion. It is a choice. So, you know, you may ask, well, okay, so love started with God. But can you have love without an object of your love? Because when you think about God, God existed from eternity past. God has no beginning whatsoever. He is self-existent, self-sufficient. Uh, he, he exists upon his own without any outside uh, force, without any outside source. He is completely self-existent from eternity past. So how can someone who has been alone for eternity past know what love is, right? That's probably going to be a question that you may get. We well, you know what's so beautiful about our God is that He exists in three persons: God the Father, God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit. And you're gonna see as we go through this passage that the Apostle John is gonna reveal to us time and time again that God exists in three persons. You know how God knows what love is? Because he has existed in a perfect love relationship with two other persons, the Son and the Spirit, from all eternity. He knows what perfect love is. You know why God sent Jesus to die for us? Yes, it was because of the love he had for us, but it was also because of the love he had for his own son. And you may say, well, how in the world could God... Why would he send his son to die if he loved him? Well, the whole reasoning is, if you understand that God put all judgment under Jesus' feet, that God put all power under the feet of Jesus. Jesus is the king of the universe. So out of the love that God had for his son, he sent his son to die So that he could sanctify a group of people to serve him and love him and be in relationship with him for all eternity. It's all based from the love that originated among the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yes, God knows what love is because his object of his love originally was the Son and the Spirit. So we understand that he is qualified to determine what love is. Love came from God. Amen? Love came from God, and only God gets to decide what love means. So the second question, so we know where love came from. We know that it came from God, that God is love, that love came from God, that uh, love originated from God. So our next question is, what is love? What is it? Because before we can live out love in our lives, we it has to be defined for us as people. And by the way, in this day and age we live in, words actually do still matter. Because we live in such a, a, an age of relative truth. And what that means is everybody gets to define their own truth that they have lost the meanings of words. Because back in the day, you said, uh, yes, sir. Well, that meant that you were talking to a man. A- and you could determine that that was a man. There was no question. Nowadays, calling a man sir can be offensive because we've lost the meanings of words. We have decided to say there is no ultimate moral giver. There is no ultimate creator. There is no ultimate supreme being. We have all become our own supreme beings. We've all created our own truths, and it it breeds chaos, If you continue to to make the meanings of words null and void, and you continue to make the objective truth of Scripture null and void, all you ever do is breed chaos. There has to be meaning, there has to be objectivity, there has to be an ultimate truth. You know why there has to be, by the way? Because there's an ultimate truth giver. If there was no God in heaven, it wouldn't matter. There would be no human value. So what if I kill somebody? So what if we abort a child in the womb? So what if we let children go hungry? So what if we let children go without getting an education? It wouldn't matter if there wasn't a lawgiver. It wouldn't matter if there wasn't a supreme creator because you would have no value. You would just be a bag of random biological stuff walking around aimlessly in life with no purpose and you would have no value. Who cares what life means if there's no God, but there is a God. And he made you in his image, and you have eternal value. Therefore, life has meaning. Therefore, words have meaning. Therefore, there is an ultimate truth. There is a true love and a real love that God extends to us. And until we grasp his definition of love, we're going to continue to hate others and hate ourselves and continue the cycle of destruction that we see playing out in our communities and in our world. What is love? You know, marriage vows beautifully. Explain love. When you think about the traditional vows, you think about for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. You know the the, the, the very simple idea that comes from that is that when you get married, it's not about you. It's not even for you. Now think about that just for a minute. True, godly marriage is not about you. It's about your spouse. It's about loving them through life, whether things are good or whether things are bad. It's about loving them whether you feel like it or not. It's about loving them whether they cook your dinner or not. It's about loving them whether they bring home the check or not. It's about loving them no matter what happens in life. You have committed and you've made a choice to love another person until death Do you part? That is a beautiful, beautiful example of agape love. Love that is from God. The love that has a definition that God defines. So it's not a reciprocal thing. It's not a business deal, by the way. That's why I think prenuptial agreements are absurdity. It's not a business deal. It's not about you. It's about your spouse. It's about loving another human being more than you love yourself. And that's what marriage is about. And it reflects beautifully the love that the Lord God Almighty had for us by sending his very own son. Did you know that when God decided to send Jesus, that there was nothing that God needed at that time? Because God needs nothing. If we never existed, he would still be God, he would still be holy, and he would still be perfect. There is nothing that Ben Heisey can ever add to God. There is nothing God needs that I can ever provide. I am completely and wholly reliant upon him. So when he sent his son to die for me, it was not so that he could get something out of it. It was not so that he could better himself or become more God. It was because of an unconditional agape love. He chose to love me. And he chose to love you regardless of what you could give him. He chose to love you regardless of how evil and wicked you may be. He chose to love you even knowing the sin that you would commit against him. The blasphemy that you would say against him. He still chooses to love you. Now that's true love. God is love. That is the definition of love that God gives. In verse 9, we see this played out so well. Read that with me. Verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world So, that we might live through him. So, here's the first thing that we see. We see that God showed his love to us by giving us life. Did you hear what that verse said? God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. So, then you might be asking, okay, we know that by him sending Jesus and him revealing love to us by sending his son, that we get life. So, what did God get? What did God get out of the deal? Well, verse 10 says, beautifully tells us exactly what God got in return. Love consists in this, verse 10, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In layman terms, Jesus got death. So here is God's definition of love. I get death, you get life. Now, does that make sense? Are you going to see that in Hollywood? Are you going to see that play out in social media? Are you going to see that in the tabloids today? God got death and we got life. That's his definition of love. So the next question we have, if you're taking notes, write this down. So we know where love came from. We know what love is because God exemplified it in sending his son to die for us. So how can we love others? How can we exemplify that same agape love? Because the book of 1 John talks about love over and over and over again. And then it connects love to the reality and the evidence that we're believers. So if we need to be exemplifying love in order to show the fruit that we know Jesus, to show the evidence that we truly are his, then we need to know how to do that, right? Well, God's word tells us how to do that as well. Let me ask you this question, okay? Let's say your son is a standout high school quarterback, all right? The sky is the limit. And somebody comes up to your son and says, you've got two options, and this choice that you make could define the rest of your life, the rest of your career. You can let Ben Heisey, who has never played the position of quarterback, and who did not play beyond his JV year of high school, coach your son as he's about to enter college, or you can get Joe Montana to coach your son. What would you say? And you ain't going to hurt my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Montana, four-time Super Bowl champ, Hall of Famer, right? Duh. Well, the same thing goes with how we learn love. we got to go to the expert. we got to go to the originator, the inventor, Where it began, who knows love best? God. That's who we're going to learn how to love from. That's how we are going to learn how to love others. So when we think about expertise, we think about there's no one more qualified than God. We see in verse 11 that we have his example. In verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. So here we have the example of love laid out before in verses 9 and 10. That God sent his son to give us life, and in turn, he took death. And then in verse 11, listen to this, in verse 11, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. You know what it's saying? You are to love others, you are to give them life, and you are to take death out of love for them. You are to give it all for others. You were to put yourself on the line to exemplify the love of Christ. You know what's interesting about what Jesus said? There were several people throughout the New Testament who would come up to him and say, Jesus, how can I have eternal life? And one of his favorite, expl- or one of his favorite answers was this, take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? we got to understand the cross was a, a device of torture, device of death, It was not some glorious thing that people desired to be hung upon. And what Jesus was saying is if you want to follow me, you are going to have to suffer. You're going to have to suffer like I'm going to suffer. You're going to have to be self sacrificial for the well being of others like I am for you. You're going to have to take bad and give good. You're going to have to take persecution in order to spread the gospel. You may have to have a poor quality of life in order to obey the God of the universe. You know, if you want to study some amazing godly people, study missionaries in the early 1900s and the late 1800s. People who had zero comforts of life were willing to get on an old wooden boat sail across the Atlantic to Africa. You think Africa's bad today, you should have gone there in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Diseases rampant. People would take their, their children and their wives, missionaries would leave the United States and go in order to share the gospel and would suffer great tragedy for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe with all my heart that those, when they stand before him, they will have crown after crown after crown to lay at his feet. Because they truly followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm not saying in order to please God you've got to go to Africa. I'm not saying in order to please God you've got to die for the faith. But I am saying that you ought to be willing to. And we live in a country where we've never been tried that way. We've never had to deal with that. But you know our brothers and sisters in North Korea are facing that right now. They're caught with the Bible. They die. Our brothers and sisters in Iran are facing that today. Today. They're being persecuted for their faith. They say that if you are publicly baptized for the testimony of your faith, that is a death sentence in the nation of Iran. If they find out that you are baptized by immersion, by proclaiming the name of Jesus and salvation, you die. But yet they're still getting baptized. They say Christianity is growing like wildfire in Iran, in North Korea, in China where the communists are trying to squeeze out every ounce of religion that's in their society. Listen. Christianity was never meant to be a cakewalk. It was never meant to be something that is prosperity and easy. That's why we have so many issues with people like Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland who want to get on there and say, Listen, you just don't believe enough. That's why you're not loaded. You just don't believe enough. That's why you're not driving the Cadillacs. That is out of hell, and that is a tool of Satan, by the way. Jesus said, Take up your cross and follow me. We must follow his example today. Verse 12, here we continue to get an explanation from the Apostle John. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. You know what that means? Jesus has already ascended to heaven. God is invisible. We cannot see God today. So how is the world going to see Jesus today? Through us. Here we have, in verse 12, the idea that his love is made complete In us. If the world is dying and going to hell, it's not because it was an insufficient sacrifice on the cross. It's not because God messed up. It's not because God was insufficient in his uh, gift to mankind. It's because we are being insufficient in showing love to a lost and dying world. Not the not the earthly kind of love, not the human kind of love but the godly kind of love, the self-sacrificial love, the love that calls sin sin in order to see souls saved, the kind of love that puts our lives on the line so that somebody else can see Jesus in us. That's that kind of love. Verse 13, it continues the explanation. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. You know, here throughout this passage, John talks about God the Father, talks about God the Son, how God gave his Son to be the sacrifice for our sins, how God gave his Son to save the world. And then he brings the Holy Spirit into the picture. Remember what we said initially? The origination of love was the love relationship that our one God who exists in three persons shared among those three persons of the Godhead. And here now we see the complete Fullness of the Trinity mentioned, he was not willing to let this passage go without mentioning the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living in us, as the book of John says, Him living within us when we get saved, is what enables us to love others. It's what enables us to have the power to love sacrificially. Here we see the Holy Spirit. We go down to verse 14 and he says this, and we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. John had an eyewitness testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw him walk, he saw him breathe, he saw him eat, and he saw him hang on the cross. The epitome of love is that the Father sent the Son, in order to save the world. And I think that's very fitting for John to round up that passage. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. It's the stamp of approval. It's the fact that God indeed showed perfect love in sending his Son to die on the cross. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, a passage that we studied a few weeks back, says this. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning, The old command is the word you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Right there, that verse is talking about love. And what he's saying there is, is that love has been commanded uh, for mankind since Genesis. But with the uh, coming of Jesus, with the death of uh, giving of his life on the cross, Love has not been exemplified more than when Jesus paid the price for our sins. So even though it's an old command, it's also a new command because there's new light that's been brought to love now with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we as human beings have seen perfect love made an example before us. We have eyewitness testimony in Scripture that says Jesus did indeed walk the earth. He did indeed die, and he did indeed rise from the dead. So now today, his love can be made complete in us when we love like he loves us, amen? So today, you might be in a place in your life where you know what? You don't feel like you have the love of God. You you don't feel like you've understood true love. Maybe you've been abused, maybe you've been mistreated. Well, I promise you the perfect love of God is an unconditional love. That no matter what you've done in your life, God loves you. No matter what you've amounted to in your own mind, God loves you. No matter how worthless you may think you are, He loves you. He made you in His image. And today you may be sitting here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. You've never trusted the fact that He died for you and He rose again so that you could be forgiven. Today is the day. You can be saved Today, The Bible teaches us that salvation is instantaneous upon your trusting in Jesus as Savior. Based upon what he did for you, you can be saved today. Maybe you've already been saved, but maybe you need God to bring you back to a place of love for lost people. Maybe you need God to reveal his love afresh and anew in your life. Because I promise you, time is running short. You know the truth, so let's go out there and let's tell people Remember, we want to be a church that evangelizes our community and reaches candler for the lost. Listen, when we get to heaven one day, I want God to look at Pole Creek, each one of us who are members here today, and say thank you for participating in winning souls to me. All these people who are standing around you are because you were faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.